0: Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au Now, a conversation that's bound to make us squirm a bit. My next guest would hope we'd squirm a lot and actually do something about it. As one reviewer of his book says, it smacks you around the ears a bit. I actually think it's a very welcome and long-overdue Christian critique of our society that just for once has nothing to do with sex. I'd venture to say it's probably a lot closer to home for most of us than many of the sex-related issues that the Church seems to be always talking about. For this is about consumerism, consumption, ultimately greed. Our culture seems to be about acquiring as many things as our incomes allow – But there are some uncomfortable questions that provokes that Scott Higgins is not afraid to ask in his book, The End of Greed. Questions like, what if our habit of acquiring more is... Damaging our relationship with God, eroding our generosity, exploiting people in poorer countries, wreaking havoc on the planet and inflicting suffering on animals. This is not the ravings of a hard left ranting raving pinko greenie. It's by a Christian minister who simply urges us to consume as if. God, people, and the planet, matter. And he does it from a very challenging place in life that has no doubt concentrated his mind wonderfully, putting all the stuff we acquire and consume into an entirely new perspective. I think this is a really important conversation for us to have and to hear. Scott Higgins, welcome to Open House.
1: Thanks, Lee. It's great to be here.
0: (laughs) Thanks for joining us. You suggest this framework that turns so much of what we know and in our own lives, Scott, on its head And you propose that we redefine getting ahead as giving more rather than getting more. I can hear lots of people say, are you for real?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Lee, um, I am for real, because I think that's the way that Jesus taught us. You know, we live on an extraordinarily abundant planet, but unfortunately, uh, a small proportion of us have a much greater share of that abundance than others. What's driven you to such a conclusion, Scott? Scott? I think for years, working as a pastor, grappling with the question of how how do we live faithfully as followers of Jesus in the world today? And I think one of the great challenges for the church today is to actually be critics of our culture, not simply to tack on a sort of spiritual appendage to um, the values of our culture. And so as I look at our society, I think one of the dominant values that drives us is consumerism. So I just started to ask, well, what should I make of that as a Christian?
0: And you call it a lie of consumerism, what exactly is that lie and why do you use that word?
1: Um, yeah, I use that word because I think consumerism holds out the promise that the good life, you know, the pathway to fulfillment and happiness and and a meaningful existence comes in the acquisition of things and experiences, not on their own, always shared in the company of family and friends. And I call that a lie for two reasons. One is it actually blinds us to Jesus' true calling which is to be far more engaged with our world than simply wrapped up with a a small circle of people that we enjoy good things with. But I think it's also a lie because research suggests that it's not the pathway to all the things it promises. You know, there's been some research done into happiness and sense of fulfilment. And in Australia, what it shows is that since 1960, for example, our real incomes, the stuff we can actually buy and afford has gone up almost fourfold So you'd think if consumerism, if having more stuff would make you happier, that we'd be four times happier than we were in 1960. Yes. But the research that's been done suggests that our fulfillment levels have just flatlined, that we're actually no happier today than we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. So there's this lie that tells us if you spend your life investing and getting more, you'll be happier, but it's not working. What do you say is
0: Jesus' call on our life then?
1: I think Jesus called is to build the kingdom of God. You know, He said to, to seek first the kingdom. And for me, that means playing our part with God in building a world where things are put right, where relationships between people are put right, with God are put right, with the creation are put right, where the social structures are put right. I think that's our calling, and that's what we're to invest ourselves in. Isn't that a call more for the new creation, the next world, rather than this? I actually think it's both you know jesus came he didn't say the kingdom is coming sit around and twiddle your thumbs and wait for it to arrive in the future yeah. he said the kingdom has arrived with me and you see it in part in jesus knowing that one day it will extend to the entire planet and i think our calling is to be people who join with god even now in seeing uh, his kingdom built or if jesus prayed you know that uh things might be on earth as it is in heaven.
0: Okay, let's see how you propose to do that. You propose five ethical consumption themes, and I'd like to explore each one of those with you in brief. The first is to consume as if God matters. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, what I mean by that, Lee, is that I think there's uh, the notion of opportunity costs that you know economists talk about, that if I use my money to buy one thing, it means I can't purchase something else. And I think that applies in the spiritual realm as well, that when we invest our time and our energy in you know, home renovations or you know, whiz-bang holidays all across the world or the latest car, it's time and energy and money. We're not investing in other people, in making the world a more just place, in relieving, alleviating poverty and seeing people come to faith. So it's this trade-off of time, energy and wealth that I think means that we uh, we need to consume as if God matters, if, as if God's call on our lives really matters. And it's not just a, something that our face, not just something we tack on to what are otherwise lives that look pretty much like everybody else.
0: Which leads neatly to your second consumption theme, consumers of people matter with generosity.
1: Yeah, I was really struck by um, a guy named Alan Barnhart, who's a Uh, owns a a business worth 250 million dollars in the united states he's a big business when he took over that business um it was just a small family business and he sat down and he said you know i didn't want my financial success to turn into spiritual failure and he read the gospels and he realized that jesus called us to use our wealth for the benefit of others so he made a decision that he would set himself a limit on what his salary from the business would be and he'd never take more than that and then they'd give away whatever the business made beyond that. So first year they gave away, I think, $50,000. He's now, through his business, giving away to ministry admission a million dollars a month. A month? A month. And the business is set up so that when he dies, all the assets and the value of the business go back into ministry as well. And struck me, there's a guy who's taken Jesus' call to be generous seriously. And for me, that's what uh, our call to generosity is. It's not to sort of, you know, have the you know, the, the appeal you hear from time to time and put your hand in your pocket and, you know, here's 50 bucks or 100 bucks or even $1,000 on an ad hoc basis. But it's to ask, how can we build generosity towards those in need into our lives as an ongoing regular feature of who we are?
0: Because it's a very common thing when you see people like Alan Barnhart, that's actually quite typical, the lavishness of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think... um. The thing I admire about him is he decided to go down this path when he wasn't earning big money. Yeah, uh, he was just like you know an, an average, you know, income earner, and he he made this decision, you know. And I just think we we seem to tack generosity on too often as a um, as an afterthought. You know, I, I get a pay rise, so my immediate thought is, well, wow, I can now go buy that fifty-five inch, you know, flat screen TV. Yes. Instead of saying, well, I'm living pretty well already how about I use this money to further the kingdom of God?
0: Your third principle is consumers if people matter again, but from the point of view of justice, not just generosity.
1: Yes, I think this is a real key point, and it was a real growth point for me. struck me one day as my son was playing soccer. He's 10 years old and he's kicked a goal. And I thought about where's that soccer ball made? And I discovered it's probably made by a child in India or Pakistan who doesn't get to go to school because they're stuck at home making soccer balls. And the reason they're stuck at home making soccer balls is their parents also make soccer balls but get paid such a terrible amount for what they do that they can't afford to send their own children to school. I need to keep them home to work. And that just strikes me as terribly unjust that, you know, I can go into a store and pay $40, $50 for that soccer ball and the people who actually stitched it get about $0.20. Cents. And if you you know look at the tags on your clothing, on your electronic equipment, you discover that a huge number of the manufactured goods we buy today come from all around the developing world. And too many people making those goods are getting paid a pittance for what they do. They're kept in poverty. Their working conditions are terrible. In fact, the working conditions would be illegal in our country because they're so dangerous. Yes. And so for me, I want to say, how do I love my neighbour here? And that for me means I need to say, how can I consume in ways that honour them? by seeing that they're paid a decent wage and decent working conditions. I want to get
0: back to that point because we need to be practical on that, and we have a little practical excursion to take later in the interview. Your fourth principle in your consumption themes is consumers, if the planet matters.
1: Yes. um, You know, Genesis' story tells us that God gave us dominion over the earth uh, to reflect his rule, to, to manage it in a way that achieves God's objectives. And as I read it, the simple reality is we're, we're not doing that. There's a thing called the ecological footprint that's put out every couple of years by the World Wide Fund for Nature. And they simply say, look, the earth has to produce the goods we, we need and it has to absorb the waste we create. So they ask, if you add up all the earth's capacity to do that, how much of that capacity are we using? Before 19, the mid-1980s, we were 60 70 80% of the earth's capacity to sustain life we were using up. In the 80s, we crossed a line and we started using the resources of the earth up faster than the earth can renew or absorb our waste, and it's just going up and up and up. We're basically stealing from the future to live in the present. And for me, again, that's a core issue for Christians. If God has made us stewards of the earth to ask how well are we managing the resources and are we doing it in a way that's sustainable?
0: Your final principle is one that's hardly ever mentioned in debates about Christian faith, that we consume as if animals matter.
1: Yes I was a bit of a late one coming to this but it struck me you know we talk about guys like William Wilberforce and his work in combating slavery. What a lot of people don't realise is that Wilberforce was also part of the formation of the RSPCA and he said as a Christian he said you know cruelty to animals is not justified and he saw it a lot in his his day in England and You know, the Bible says, again, we're given dominion over the animals, not in order to exploit them, but in order to manage their welfare, their interests, just as God calls us to uh, image himself. So I ask the question, how do I image myself in a God in the treatment of animals? You know, what does it mean to love, to be compassionate, to be generous, to be kind? And I think it's clear that with the shift away from the sort of family farming to industrial-scale farming there are serious animal welfare issues that get raised. And just the rate right at which we're using resources, we're seeing extinction of species at a, an unprecedented level historically. And I, I think that should concern Christians.
0: On Open House, we're with Scott Higgins, who's the author of the rather provocatively titled book, The End of Greed. Scott, what if this argument is equally valid, that a good and generous God has lavished us with so much stuff for
1: us to enjoy it? I would say, yes, that's true. You know, the creation stories don't describe a barren planet where humanity ekes out a miserable existence. It's a beautiful world. It's an abundant world. You know, I'm struck by Genesis 2 where it says God made trees grow out of the ground that were good for food and pleasing to the eye. You know, there's an aesthetic beauty to it. We're meant to soak all that up. The problem is we're also meant to share it. And at the moment, you know, we live in a planet where 1.3 billion human beings don't have enough to even meet the most basic needs of life. Another one to two billion human beings are um, right on the fringes of not having enough to meet their bas- most basic needs, where we're using the resources too fast. So I think we have the privilege, but privilege also brings responsibility, and part of that responsibility is to see that the resources of the Earth get managed so that all creatures, all people, all animals, have their needs and their interests cared for. Okay.
0: Let's get practical. I'm impressed that you haven't just thrown out all this kind of theory and theology with your argument. You also offer practical ways of how and what our lives and our consumption should look like. Give us a few examples.
1: Yeah, look, Lee, I think one of the things that happens with this sort of stuff is it can become overwhelming. Totally. You know, like you see there's this enormous problem there are simple things you can do that make a big difference. So let me give a couple of examples. I mentioned earlier about soccer balls and my son playing um, soccer with a ball that was stitched by a child being paid a pittance. I bought a fair trade soccer ball. They're available in Australia. And basically, the fair trade movement is a labeling system that says, if you buy this product, you can be sure it's come from a, a producer. Number one, that hasn't used child labor. Number two, hasn't used forced labor or slave labor. Number three has made sure that the people who do make it, the adults making the product, are paid a decent wage so they can lift themselves out of poverty. So just by simply buying a fair trade soccer ball rather than a regular soccer ball, I've helped somebody rather than exploited somebody. It'll
0: probably cost me more?
1: It'll cost you a little bit more. It's interesting in Australia the cost of fair trade products is higher than regular products mainly because it's a small market. In the UK, my understanding is that the market's much bigger and the prices have come down to be pretty close to regular prices. And that makes sense because you think that soccer ball, pay, say, 30 or $40 for it, a dollar would be often all that would be added on to pay the worker a decent wage. So it's not a huge difference, but it's an important difference.
0: How else would you suggest we practically change
1: our lives that's actually going to work? Yep, okay, so if you come back to the generosity issue... I think one of the things is to just find simple mechanisms to to make a difference. So one of the things that my wife and I do is uh, we sponsor a couple of kids with the organization I work with, Baptist World Aid, because it's regular giving. The money comes out of our pay before we even see it. So it's building that regularity in rather than just sort of ad hoc from time to time giving. Maybe doing something like Alan Barnhart did, saying, look, here's the level at which I'm going to live. That's a pretty decent level. Anything I earn above that, I'll choose to give away so I think simple mechanisms that allow you to build structure into your giving um, if you turn to the issue of how we treat the planet you know it can be as simple as saying well instead of putting my air conditioner on it you know and running it 24-7 and thinking it's somehow normal that at every time of year I can walk around my house in a t-shirt you know turn the air conditioner off and put on a jumper.
0: That's very easy to say. You know? And do, actually.
1: It is, it yes. is. And there's lots of very simple things like that that yep. we can build in. That I've, I've talked about a number of them in the book, but simple, practical steps, and you don't have to start doing them all at once. You know, my suggestion um, in, in this book is, you know, just pick up one of these things and start implementing it. Then once you've got that in, under control, come back to something else.
0: You mentioned electronic goods before. How might I do that differently? That's a bit of a puzzle to me. Yeah, how might I buy
1: better? I think electronic goods are interesting in terms of the environmental side. You know, you go into uh, the store and you see, for example, they'll have the energy ratings on them. Yeah. Well, you know, it's easy to say. Well, I'm going to preference a product that has a a really good energy rating rather than a lousy energy rating. In terms of the justice side of things, I I think it's a a more difficult issue because there's not fair trade electronic goods, for example. So one of the things that I encourage people to do is if you hear that there's a problem in the factories where your good has been produced, because it, it makes it into the media from time to time, write a letter to the company and say, I love your product, but I'm concerned about the treatment of workers in your factories. I really think you can do better. Get your act together.
0: Yep. I mentioned at the top that you approach these large questions from a perspective that no doubt concentrates your mind wonderfully. You had quite a year last year, didn't you?
1: Yes, it was a uh, interesting year. I began the year by being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and I finished the year being diagnosed with leukemia. So, I've got these two very long-term slow progression diseases that are have suddenly become part of the reality with which I live. How do you deal with that, especially
0: as a Christian minister?
1: Yep. Um I think there's a, a couple of things first i'm very fortunate that i have one of those personalities that i tend to live in the present not the future that's good so i don't stress too much about the future Um, the second thing is i have a really great family around me Um, both my my family of origin but also my wife and my kids are incredibly supportive Um, my faith has made a huge difference i think it helps give me perspective you know the bibles talk about the resurrection of the body in the future and living for eternity in a new world it's perfect and wonderful and suited to human kind of think well you know this is a debilitating disease but it's, it's not the end of life for me yeah. um, there is a, a future hope that I, I cling to and I trust that uh, I, I pray for healing but you know if healing doesn't come then this will be an opportunity for me to prove God's goodness and God's strength in my life I'm sure it's cast a new light on all this stuff that you write
0: about in the book
1: yeah, it's it's interesting because I'd composed most of this stuff before yes. any of this diagnosis, but it, it does throw it into sharper relief for, for me I suppose the diseases have been a way of saying to myself well, you know, am I am I really making the most of what God's called me to do with my life? Um it you know focuses me on the fact that life will have an end. You know, um, I'm in my mid 40s and you know had always sort of assumed that it that was almost never ending, endless yeah, so consumption. It, yeah, yes. Endless consumption, but you know it's not and I have to be a good steward of my life and my resources.
0: Scott, I'm under no illusions about the challenge this presents for all of us to change our lives, sometimes radically. It's one thing to know what to do. How will we do it? How are we going to be motivated and empowered
1: to do this, do you think? Great question. I think it's really hard to do it on your own. That's why I think that the people of God need to band together and, you know... um, If I'm trying to swim against the cultural current on my own, it's a very lonely place to be. But if I'm doing it with a group of people who are saying, together let's get just absolutely serious about the kingdom of God, then it's a thrilling journey. Um, It it has questions, it has challenges, but it's thrilling. And so that's why to go along with the uh, whole book, there's a Bible study and preaching series so that churches can actually pick this stuff up and do it together. Yeah.
0: How might people get a hold of that, the book and the... uh preaching series in the Bible study.
1: Yep, um, you can go to Amazon Books, so amazon.com and just search for The End of Greed and you'll find the resources there or you can go to a website we've set up called, which is um, endofgreed.com and you can order resources through there.
0: We'll post that on our Open House Community Facebook page. Scott Higgins, thanks so much for joining us on Open House. Thanks, Lee.